So if you'd like to turn to, we have two passages that we'd like to look at this morning. Uh, we'll read the two passages and I'll, I'll, I'll explain where we're going. But the first passage is Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 through verse 45. And this is where our Lord quotes uh, Psalm 110, and it's a very interesting context as well. Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And so in the context, it's the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry. And as you know, up until this point, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were um, arguing with the Lord. They were trying to trap him. And at this juncture, our Lord brings this psalm and this idea to them. And at this point, it says they, could, they can no longer ask him any more questions. Um, he, he very masterfully brought something to their attention that, that they should have, at least on the surface, understood and known. And then if you would turn to the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, and this has to do with the incarnation. I've, I've been thinking about the incarnation for a couple of months, actually, and what we're going to see is, is a tie-in between David's son and David's lord. And we're going to look at David and the Lord, and we're going to, we're going to see some very interesting context of these two. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, you're familiar with verse 2, but let me read verse 1 through verse 4. Micah 5, beginning in verse 1. Micah being, what, five or six books to the left of the New Testament. Now... Gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will I give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, I'm sure you've heard, perhaps even preached on in the context of 
the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is quoted in the New Testament as, as proof that Christ would be the Messiah, that he would be born there. And the whole idea of the incarnation um, is really a tremendous deep well of spiritual truth. Obviously, the Lord had to be born as a man um, into this world to save us. Um, but even connected with his incarnation, um, there's so much truth that it's, it's, just, it's just an amazing idea that infinite God would take upon himself the form of a man and be born into this world. Um, other verses may not directly talk about his incarnation, but I, I think they're like concentric circles. If you throw a pebble into a pond and you see concentric circles or ripples, and, and some of those outliers might seem to be insignificant, but when you trace them back to the center, you understand there's, they're somehow connected. And so it is with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many things on the periphery have not only direct bearing from the fact that he was incarnate, but have perhaps some other tie-in. Um, perhaps 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is, is an example uh, you're probably familiar with that verse that says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. So there's his incarnation. He was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Each of those concentric circles come back to the fact that God was manifest in the flesh. What I'd like to do today is, is kind of follow two parallel tracks and consider the Lord Jesus Christ as David's son and yet as David's Lord. David, who is that, that great type of Christ, I'd like to look at several aspects in his life and see the connection that the scriptures make between David and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus as David's son, according to the flesh. Think of the incarnation of the son of man. But then David's Lord, his incarnation as the son of God. He never ceased to be fully God, even though he was also fully man. And again, there are several links between these two. And again, it's not just that David is a type of Christ, um, in, in several different ways, but even in the incarnation. Uh, Micah 5, with this proclamation, this prophecy, we're going to see an expansion of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, both as the son of David and David's Lord, the sovereign king. And again, you would think, as we look through this material, I, I think if you were to try to put yourself in the context of Matthew 22 with those Pharisees that were asking Christ these questions. And if Jesus made this connection that David's son and David's Lord, with all the history they knew about David, you would think they would at least go home and think about David and what God did with David and then Christ and, and see those connections and understand this mystery no father calls his son Lord, but, but see this, this mystery of the incarnation of Christ and 
how God was setting Christ up on high. So the takeaway today, I hope what we learn is, is more about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the vantage point, not that he was born in a manger or some of the many, many other truths, but from the vantage point that he's David's son and at the same time, David's Lord. I'm not going to be referring to the Matthew passage. I'm going to be referring specifically or more importantly to that Micah passage. And I'd like to look at five areas this morning with you. First of all, we're going to look at his birth. Again, we're going to be drawing parallels between David and the Lord Jesus. His birth. Secondly, his lineage. I'm going to suggest that Christ has three lineages. Thirdly, we'll look at his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. Fourthly, his ministry as shepherd. And Micah talks about two. Micah talks about deliverance and feeding. And then fifthly and lastly, we'll look at his crowning victory. And and I'll close with one one application. But again, based on Micah chapter 5, with these allusions to David, but more specifically to David's Lord. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he was born into this world as David's son, as David's Lord. Like David, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And in order for Jesus to be able to be our sympathetic high priest, to be able to identify with us, he could not just appear on the scene like Elijah. I think intuitively, I would think God would just all of a sudden appear on the scene. But he had to, he had to go through the birth canal. He, he had to be, from day one, be able to, in all points, suffer, be tempted, be afflicted, and experience the very same things that we experience. So he was born as an infant. He was incarnate. He was born in a geographical place and in a geographical time, a, a time period that was important. David, of course, the patriarch David was also born in Bethlehem, wasn't he? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, Samuel was sent to Bethlehem to anoint the king. And he would eventually find David. And you know that story. Um, David was very insignificant outwardly. God doesn't look on the outward, God looks on the heart. But remember, when the clan of Jesse was taken and everybody had to appear before, uh, before this, I'm going to call it a tribunal, to pick who was going to be the king, David would have, you know, he was, he was not the one that they would pick. He was insignificant. He was small. But David had, was born in Bethlehem. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, David's great-grandparents were also born and lived in Bethlehem, Ruth and Boaz. They lived in Bethlehem. And there they raised their son Obed, Obed, David's grandfather. And Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And even in the book of Ruth, it talks about Bethlehem Ephratah. Do thou worthily in Bethlehem, excuse me, do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. So the seed of David, David himself and the seed of David, were tied in with Bethlehem and Ephratah 
even in the book of Ruth. And so Bethlehem is called the city of David because David was born there. Luke chapter 2 and verse 4. But especially noteworthy is the prophecy and the later fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands, out of thee shall come forth the one that is to me to be the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Very significantly, and according to the providence of God, God had this this census of Caesar Augustus, this decree that the world should be taxed. God used this to bring Joseph and Mary at the right time to Bethlehem, so that in the city of David, in Bethlehem, Jesus would be born there. Though Bethlehem is very obscure, it was very little. It was, it was a distance away, five or six miles south of Jerusalem, mainly pasture land, no big metropolis. But this place of insignificance is the place where Christ would be born. Bethlehem, of course, means house of bread. Ephratah means fruitfulness. Both of these words signifying abundance and fertility and growth. And this place of rich fruitfulness symbolically pointed to the spiritual abundance that the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be and would would fulfill, John chapter 6. Again, Bethlehem, think about the Lord Jesus Christ now being incarnate into the world. And of all the places that God would have his son born, it's this place that is so insignificant, so unimportant, so little, nothing major in Bethlehem to commend itself. As a matter of fact, in the earlier books of of the Bible, uh, Joshua, for example, when they're naming all the cities, they don't even name Bethlehem. It's that insignificant. And yet, the king, the king would be born in this place. Isn't that what the Magi even said when they were trying to find out and there was a connection with Micah 5 2? Where is, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Oh, Bethlehem Ephratah. They knew it intellectually, but they didn't make that spiritual connection. The significance, let me just mention two of the significant issues why Christ was born in Bethlehem. First of all, he would be born in a relatively obscure place, identifying with his humility, identifying with what was consistent with the kingdom of God upon the earth. No pomp and circumstance, no notoriety, no riches, Nothing on the surface that everybody can point to, but rather obscurity, humility. In a worldly sense, it was, not, it was the least of all the cities of Judah, and yet God was perfecting strength out of seeming weakness. And he does this throughout the Bible. He, he will attach 
He, he will immortalize obscure places by what his providence does in those places. Bethlehem, we understand the divine purpose of God where he would choose the base things of this world to bring to not the things that are. And, and I think we understand that there's a spiritual uh, dignity or, or a spiritual purpose realized when God can, can do something like this very thing. The last place in the world that Jesus should have been born would have been Bethlehem. And yet we see the, the spiritual beauty of God doing a very thing. First uh, Corinthians, you know this. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. <coughs> and the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. And why does God do this? Why does God do this? The verse goes on to say, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. Micah's prophecy probably surprised many. But the birthplace of Christ was really synonymous with Christ, who the Bible said had no form nor comeliness with which we would desire him. And yet out of this place, Micah said, would he come forth to me that was going to be ruler in Israel in spite of an insignificant birthplace, an insignificant birthing. Micah, by these words, would recall that announcement. Do you remember what Samuel, back to David again, when they're looking for a king, And God says something to to Samuel when they finally figure out, okay, God says it's David. God says, I have provided me a king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David. David. David was the last person that should have been designated as king. King James uses the word stripling. He's a stripling. He's a kid. He's got no military backing. He's got no political experience. Same thing they said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he's not the Messiah. He's, he's the carpenter's son. Uh, who, he never learned divinity in a school. Who is he to teach us? There's no way he is the Messiah. The exact same thing that they said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in this place of insignificant, in the same way David, who was also born in Bethlehem, who was pulled out of that place to be an earthly king. So God orchestrates by his providence that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be a king unto him and a king over spiritual Israel, would be born in that same place. And secondly, just I'll mention Bethlehem meaning the house of bread, Ephratah meaning fruitfulness. We understand, as Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Christ as the bread of life would be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. 
God's kingdom does not come by observation. And in the same way that David, David's son, Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem, when, when David was born in Bethlehem, no issue, really. But when David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is born in Bethlehem, there's a problem if you're going to tie that to the fact that he's the Messiah from the, from the Pharisee's standpoint. Secondly, let me just talk briefly about his lineage, David's son and David's Lord. As David's son, we know that Jesus was in the line of David. He was incarnate to a very specific lineage. Humanly speaking, the lineage of Jesus Christ is twofold. Matthew chapter 1, we have the lineage of, of Joseph, who was the guardian or the stepfather, the earthly guardian. In Luke chapter 3, we have the lineage of, of Mary. And if you put these two genealogies side by side, there is a little bit of a divergence between the two, but we know this. Matthews begins Jesus' lineage with Abraham and works forward through history, ending in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. In Luke chapter 3, the lineage goes the other way. It begins with Joseph, the stepfather, and it works its way backward through history, going all the way back to Adam, who was the son of God. We have these two lineages that go start different places and they, and they go different directions. But, but Joseph is clearly a descendant of David. And Mary, not only by virtue of the fact that she is legally, because she has been married to Joseph as part of the line of David, but actually it looks like they're distant cousins. And Mary was also in the line of David. But, but clearly Jesus is in the lineage of David and he's David's son in that way. But what about Jesus's other lineage as the son of God? Here, here's the rub, because Christ's Lineage as David's Lord must be traced elsewhere, right? And, and the Bible gives us the lineage of the Son of God in Micah 5. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So that's his divinity lineage. There isn't one. It's eternal. It's everlasting. He always was. Even though he was born in time in Bethlehem, his goings forth, Micah says, have been from of old, from everlasting. And linguists tell us that doesn't mean he always was. What that means is he always was and he always will be. It's, it's everlasting to its infinite dimensions. This incommunicable attribute, his preexistent nature. David's Lord had no beginning. David's Lord has no end. And so Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am. 
And so the book of, 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 of Daniel specifically calls Jesus the Ancient of Days. He's the Ancient of Days. The psalmist can say, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Then he brings in creation. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He always was. He had this this earthly beginning as David's son. He has no beginning as David's Lord. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Or as Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which... I had with thee before the world was. When you consider his his lineage, it's amazing to see the, the overlap between his earthly lineage, how God worked it out perfectly that he would be the son of David in that way, but then his eternal, his everlasting Lineage, if we could call it in that way. You can see his everlasting nature and character in creation. You can see his everlasting nature in theophany, when even before Jesus Christ became incarnate, he appeared. He appeared as Melchizedek. He appeared to the, to the parents of, of, of Gideon. Uh, He appeared as the angel of his presence through the exodus. Before he was incarnate, he appeared. He shall come forth unto me, God says. He comes forth for divine purpose to accomplish divine will first, to God first, and then for lost humanity. It's an unfathomable depth to intersect time and eternity with the Son of God. He had eternal existence and glory, and yet he condescends to to the limitations, to the conditions of this environment we call earthly existence. From the poor manger to the bitter cross at Calvary, he humbled himself to be David's son. Thirdly, his kingdom. Think about David's kingdom for a minute. David's kingdom was built very slowly. It started off slowly. It began with his anointing. He wasn't recognized by everybody as king. Some would not own him as king. There was this process that that time through time he had to go through. very similar to the Messiah's kingdom, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was brought forth, Micah said, as a king. He never ceased to be king. He was incarnate to be the perfect king. But the difficulty is logic that says if he's born earthly, he must be an earthly king. Whereas 
when God said in Micah, he's to be the ruler in Israel, God is talking about spiritual Israel. Those who are born again. Abraham's children according to the promise of faith. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember, if if his kingdom was of this world, he would have brought in angels to fight his cause. Or he could have spoken a word. Galatians chapter 3 really develops the whole idea of God's spiritual Israel, the the spiritual nature of his everlasting kingdom. And the nature of his rule was that he was to be ruler in Israel. Every earthly king disappoints. King David disappointed. But it's only the Messiah who would establish his throne, who would be unchecked, and unmarked with any negative, any, any missing aspect of his kingdom. Again, in, in Jesus' day, at one point, they wanted to make him king because he could multiply loaves and fishes. He could calm the sea. He could heal the sick. Well, that's our king. And then... As Jesus progressed in his ministry, they didn't like the fact that the people, the outcasts, were listening to him. Those aren't the people that should be in the kingdom. And they didn't like the fact that Jesus was challenging their thoughts of the traditions of men and how they looked at the law and and other things. And and very slowly, they went from wanting to compel him. The the Bible says in John 6, they were going to take him by force and compel him to be king. And that this whole thing slowly turns around where they are accusing him and they eventually crucify him. But for all of this, the spiritual sense predicted in Micah and other places was he was the true king of the true Israel, a kingdom that would abide forever, people that would abide forever, as Micah says. The very same kingdom that we are in today, if we belong to him, seeing that we have received a kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us serve God reverently and acceptably with godly fear. So this prophecy in Micah about his kingdom, stellar in its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, his ministry as shepherd. And here again, too, Micah mentions, too, in verse 4, what he will do. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then note, and they shall abide. I think we've all had pictures in our mind of David as a earthly shepherd. And we can surmise that David was a a good shepherd. That is, David would uh, feed his flock. He would water them. He would protect them. He would guide them into pastures. Uh, When we read Psalm 23 about the good shepherd, it, it, it appears that this psalm is reflective of the Lord as a spiritual shepherd, but, but also as David wanting to be, uh, uh, model himself after the Lord. Uh, David understood shepherding. He knew what was important. He knew what was at the heart of God as as the spiritual shepherd over the spiritual sheep. 
Micah brings out these two main aspects, the feeding and the deliverance. In general, before we talk about the feeding and the protecting or the deliverance, in general, we know the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was very, very often characterized as a shepherd. He came to those who he said were like sheep without a shepherd. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, talk about how the Israelite shepherds had gone very, very bad, feeding themselves, not feeding the flock, not taking care, no eye to God for direction and wisdom on how to, how to handle the sheep, turned the whole thing upside down. Jesus was incarnate to be our shepherd, our spiritual shepherd. And all those characteristics that we know we need from our shepherd, his gentleness. Feeding the flock, gathering the lambs, his, his watchfulness, the helps he supplies, his care. And we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, even giving his life a ransom for many. We, we see the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, just in this magnificent way, being our shepherd. But notice these two in Micah. He talks about feeding. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. And then he provides deliverance where it says, and they shall abide. The primary work of a shepherd is to feed. To feed the flock. This word feed is a word that means to feed by ruling. Matthew 2 verse 6 says, out of thee shall come a governor that shall feed, or some translations say, or rule my people Israel. Linguists say that the word really means as a shepherd, everything that a shepherd does protects guides, feeds, governs them. But all of those things have as their final destination to feed. He protects us that he might feed us. He corrects us that he might feed us. He governs us that he might feed us. Man's soul is hungry for spiritual food. Perhaps you know people who, who go to, to other churches or they're involved with other ministries or, or just in casual conversation. This has to be a common denominator. They want to be fed spiritual meat, spiritual food. Christ stands to feed. Christ, uh, other places, he sits to feed. All as a shepherd feeding his flock. The Israelites, the Pharisees, the scribes, when Jesus was saying David's son and David's Lord, if they had thought about David as shepherd, and they had the historical account, they probably taught, were taught the, the, the Sunday school stories. And yet, as they saw the ministry of Christ as David's Lord, they could not miss the fact he was always teaching. He was always preaching. He was imparting words of wisdom. He was guiding them. 
by the word of God. It all came back to the word of God. And they didn't make that connection. The shepherd king stands and he shall feed, Micah says. If you're looking for a characteristic of the Messiah, he's going to be the one that is feeding everybody. And they missed it. Also, deliverance. They shall abide. Jesus Christ is actively engaged to deliver his people. John Calvin said, we should learn to expect from Christ just as much salvation as there is of power in God. So in other words, however much power God has, our salvation initially and then on a daily basis should be commensurate with his power. David, we're going to talk about deliverance with David in a minute, but, but Christ came to deliver once and for all. If the Son of Man shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You've been freed into freedom. And the blessings of the shepherd who provides deliverance, when Micah says they shall abide, they shall remain, they shall last, shows the permanent nature of God's kingdom and the permanent nature of his sheep. Doesn't matter if there's going to be uh, 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 wolves to come in, God will take care of it. Doesn't matter if there seems to be a dearth of pasture land, God will take care of it because they shall abide, because his kingdom will abide. Many passages, Psalm 72, read, read that. You, you'll see the nature of the shepherd, king, where these two are met, uh, uh, matched together. It's, it's tremendous. David did these things to one degree or another. David delivered. David, David fed his sheep. But the perfect man, David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, did these things from an eternal perspective, with majesty, with glory, with power and the purpose of God. He very purposefully fed and continues to feed his flock. Fifthly and lastly, the crowning victory that that Micah talks about, his crowning victory, that last phrase of verse four, now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate to be absolutely victorious, completely victorious. And as a man, the son of man, he would fulfill the promise that God made back in the garden. When God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. His mission would not be complete until he was utterly victorious. Of course, in many places, this was prophesied, even in connection with his coming. The scripture says we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all of those that hate us. God was going to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. 
the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Absolutely victorious. Completely victorious. Crowning victory. I'd like to relate, there's two accounts in the life of David that I would like to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think they illustrate the Lord Jesus Christ and they illustrate this connection between David's son and David Lord's. David's Lord. These two accounts are on the scale. One you're going to think is, well, that's such of a small detail. And the other one is large, but I think it shows the complete span of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And we're going to look at what David did and we're going to relate it to what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Both of these are related to the account of when David was going to fight Goliath. That's a spiritual picture of, of, of as David would fight Goliath, we have the spiritual picture of the Lord Jesus Christ defeating Satan. And we're not going to go into that part of it, but, but that's basically what the scene is. But the first account of David's crowning victory, David came to Saul and David was volunteering to fight Goliath. And, and if you remember that scene, Goliath was taunting the Israelites. He was challenging them. And there wasn't a single individual in Israel who wanted to fight, let alone get beat. There wasn't a single one who realized they could fight against Goliath. So David comes and says, I will go fight him. And David immediately gets pushed back. You're not the man. You cannot do it. You're little. You're young. You have no experience. And David says this to prove his case. David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear, and they took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and I smote him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. Here David is recounting this, this fact that he was guarding the sheep, and let's say there was a hundred sheep, and a bear and a lion, and I don't know if a bear and a lion can cohabitate and both fight for the same lamb, or if this was multiple occasions. But the word of God says, a bear and a lion came and took a lamb. And, and David said, and I went after him, and I smote him. Now this is David, bare hands, killing a lion and a bear. And David goes on to say, the Lord delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And so Saul says, go and the Lord be with thee. So he accepts David's word of what happened. And David with 
trusting it to the Lord, giving glory to the Lord of what happened earlier, responsible with the flock that he was entrusted to by his father, determination, courage, dependence upon God. David, to prove that he could fight Goliath, recounts a story that he saved one sheep. Now your mind should immediately think about the Lord Jesus Christ who said that he would leave 99 in the wilderness and go after one to save the one. Now you might think that's insignificant to save one sheep, but actually it's a very big deal. And the reason it's a big deal because if Jesus were to lose one sheep, just one, he's not victorious. He's defeated. He has to keep, he has to save, and he has to keep all that the Father gives him. And so I think there's this tremendous parallel, this, is, this tie-in with David, who would hazard his own life to save one sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not about to go out and fight a lion and a bear. But David did. And that looks forward to what the Lord Jesus Christ does, I think, on a, on a daily basis, saving this one and that one, the single ones out in the wilderness. The second account of victory that points to the Lord Jesus Christ follows what David did. David then goes and fights Goliath. Again, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who defeated Satan. And I trust you know the story. David without a sword, David with the five stones in the shepherd's uh, script bag, runs towards Goliath, slings a stone, and that stone goes in, in the exact place, guided by the providence of God, the exact place where there seemed to be a chink in the armor, with such force that it kills Goliath. An astounding astounding victory. The battle was the Lord's. David runs up, and then and then the King James uses the language that, that Goliath was killed twice. He died when the stone was slung, and then David cuts off his head. But this victory set the course for the entire life of David. This was the crowning victory. This defined who David was. It says other places, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. But there's those places where it always comes back to David was who he was because he killed Goliath. This was the crowning victory. And of course, when we think now forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, you would agree with me that his crowning victory was his ultimate, final, victorious sacrifice on Calvary's Calvary's cross. Golgotha, the place of the skull, where the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death, humanly speaking, by wicked hands, but knowing that it was according to the predeterminate and foreknowledge of God who sent forth his Son to be the propitiation of For our sins. On Calvary's cross, 
The Lord Jesus Christ became entirely victorious over death, over sin, taking upon himself through this, this unimaginable fight, a fight to the death, his death, gaining the final, full, complete victory on Golgotha. Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross at Golgotha. Golgotha is named the place of the skull because supposedly we've been told it looks like a skull. I've, I've looked at pictures of it and I don't know, it's kind of like those ink blot tests. It, it kind of looks like a skull, but, but maybe it doesn't. It's not all that clear to me. I think the word of God suggests another reason why it's called the place of the skull. After David killed Goliath, the Bible says, remember David beheaded Goliath. The Bible says David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem. So David brings Goliath's skull to Jerusalem. David, it's conceivable that David brought it as proof that he killed Goliath. It was a trophy of some some significance. And then it's conceivable that because this was an unclean thing, it was buried outside of Jerusalem. And it's conceivable to me that it was buried on a hill that became known as Gal Goliatha, actually. The hill, which is then became known as the place of the skull, the place of Goliath's skull. And it's conceivable to me that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was planted directly over Goliath's skull to emphasize the reality of that victory. And by the way, the Bible very carefully says when David beheaded Goliath, he was standing on top of Goliath. The ultimate and final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, his crowning victory as both David's son. Christ had to become a man to take our sin upon himself. And as David's Lord, the Son of God, the only one who could endure, the only one who could complete that victory, the Lord Jesus Christ. David's Son and David's Lord. Well, let me close very briefly with a very brief application. When, when you see David's son and David's Lord, and when you look at, at, at the idea of David who foreshadowed Christ in many ways, and you think about the incarnation of Christ, there seems to be an infinite distance between the Son of God in eternity, his infinite being, and, and people like us. And yet by virtue of his incarnation, we understand that an infinite, eternal, 
majestic God does enter into relationships with finite creatures of the dust like us. In the same way that Christ left his heavenly throne and and became a man, he became incarnate. So Christ will come into our heart and will save us. And by his spirit, through faith, by grace, dwell in our hearts by faith. We think of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and we, we stand back and we, we almost sense we're detached and we almost sense we're looking at a Christmas scene of the Son of God coming, becoming incarnate. But in a, in a spiritual sense, is that not what he does to believers? If I can use this language, he becomes incarnate in our heart. He lives in our heart, not physically, but in that spiritual sense. And we will be included in, in the, the, the tremendous promises and prophecies of Micah. We always stop with just five, chapter 5 and verse 2, but verse 3 and verse 4, where we see the fulfillment of his kingdom. This is what he does for his believers. And all we can say is, is what Paul said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Well, let's close our study with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that always points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we glory in him and his salvation today. Lord, we pray that as the people of God, as the sheep of God, we would be those that would be very, very, very diligent to follow the shepherd, to understand uh, the tremendous truth of thy word, of how the Lord Jesus Christ Though David's son, according to the flesh, yet predominantly and preeminently David's Lord. And we own him this day as our Savior, as our Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.